This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.com. The time is just before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning. It's uh, 10 o'clock Eastern Daylight Savings Time now. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9, up to Bangor. This is Boat Talk, the uh, radio call-in show with your hosts, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, two old boat carpenters. Work on uh, boats sometimes that are so old and rickety that you could say we were derelict in our duties. Just the kind of people you'd like to call up and talk to about anything naval. And joining us today also is another WERU comrade and another boat builder, too, Greg Russell. Hi, guys. How you doing? Glad to have you here, Greg. Greg's uh, just put out his second book now, his two-and-a-half book. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit. We're going to be talking about uh, lobster bycatch. We're going to be talking about boat building and the boat building school. And uh, Mike is going to start right off with a few little items to begin to get us going. Yeah, we've, uh, like always, got an embarrassment of riches here this morning as a call-in show. Give us a call anytime, and we'll stop what we're doing and talk to you. That's pretty much how it works. I should say that number then. one 625 is the phone number. Yeah, Greg uh, Russell, of course, is uh, multi Famous and multi-talented. He's oh, not only on host of a world of music here, but uh, he is a boat builder. He's a writer. He's a teacher. Uh, wonderfully diversified. I think we'll we'll get to Greg in a little while. But as always, uh, as long as you're here, you're more or less uh, more of a co-host than a guest. And you did time. Oh well, thank you kindly. Time right up uh, any 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 time you think uh, appropriate. And, uh, yeah, there's there's a couple little marine items here. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, we'll mention this now. We'll talk to them hopefully later from uh, Tricia down to the Atlantic Challenge down to Rockland. Uh, they're going to have a marine flea market, a nautical flea market. They do that the first Saturday of June every year. They need stuff. Right now would be a good time to start piling up stuff for the marine flea market down there. Atlantic Challenge, 643, sort of the uh, east end of Main Street in Rockland. Five nine four eighteen hundred or AtlanticChallenge.com. And uh, that would be more fun to go to than give stuff to when none of us have enough marine items, That's do we? That's right. Jeez, I guess. It's nice to have all that stuff kicking around the shop and in the attic and just sort of leaning around the walls around the house just to look at. I did a good thing last year. I got a young uh, friend of mine. Matter of fact, he's one of the kids from Raw Faith. Uh, he grew up and wanted his own boat. I told him not to, and he got one anyway. And <laughs> so I've I've been uh, giving him piles of stuff. I've I've been storing for years, thinking, well, I can't, you know, I got to have that. And but I haven't used it for years, so I've been giving them to Tom. And what a joy that's been, really. To you know, that's a good thing. So uh, there's lots of things out there for the Marine Flea Market Atlantic Challenge. And when is uh, that again? First of June is when the flea market is. The first, first, first Saturday weekend. in June. First, first Saturday in June. In June. Every, every year they do that. First yeah, just like June. Botox, the second Tuesday. That can be confusing unless you just go through your calendar and write them all down right now. I put a boat talk on the second Tuesday of every every uh, month on the calendar. First thing I get one just so I'll never miss boat talk, which is Al and I were saying I did one time. <laughs> what Tuesday is it? Oh, well. Speaking of calendars, though, the Boat Talk calendar is coming around again, and uh, this month's cover uh, f- cover photo, what do we call this, the, the, the premier photo at the top is a friend of mine, Thurman Bradford, a delivery captain, and he and I were delivering a Hinkley 50 from Connecticut down to Florida, the south end of Florida, and we were way offshore after a big storm, you can see in the picture there's some really big waves behind it. He's just grinning ear to ear because the weather is nice. You know, the, the weather was nice. We were south of the uh, Gulf Stream by then, and the 
big blue skies, temperatures probably about 70, 72 degrees, and uh, just having all kinds of fun and riding up and down these big roller coasters. Big seas and uh, warm water. I uh, wrote a description of that the other day uh, from my, I've, I wasn't there, but I wrote something uh, about it on the website, boattalk.org, and, and uh, we're still working on that now. Boattalk.org, we have an interesting problem, which is about uh, rights to, for instance, uh, we've always used Lyle Lovitz, if I had a boat as theme music for Boat Talk on the radio, not a problem whatsoever. Once you post that thing onto the web, now you allow anybody in the world to take Lyle's performance for 30 seconds. You've got new copyright problem. And it's uh, apparently Wild West days in the, uh, in the copyright world of the web. They haven't quite settled on it yet, but everybody agrees it's a little bit on the expensive side. Now, I heard a fascinating explanation of this uh, from Rush Limbaugh, of all people. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh, let's think about it. He does a radio show, listen to 20, minute, 20 million people yeah, a day, okay? Plus, he has a website where he puts all these radio shows, podcasts, and, you know. So the first thing Rush Limbaugh does when he posts something to the web is he takes all the bumper music, all the, th- all the intro music, all the song parodies, takes them right off. Okay, His show is musicless on the web, and that is because Rush Limbaugh doesn't want to pay for that. And uh, he feels that it's ba- it's based on, uh, and I've read the legal stuff, boggles my mind, um, it's based on a percentage per listener. And he estimates that if he had the same amount of people on the web as he did on the radio, let's say $20 million a day, cost him $6,000 a show to post music on the web doesn't cost them that much on the radio. So we are uh, sort of commissioning a new theme music for Boat Talk. And when that comes around, uh, then we're going to do things. And, uh, you know, until then, it's sort of like uh, eh, we're working on it. So we have copyright issues. It's kind of, you know, it's wild, wild and wonderful and weird. And we'd rather we didn't, but there it is. So Yeah. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yeah, would you like to spend six thousand dollars a year for the pleasure of uh, you know spreading boat talk on the on the? I don't know. Yeah, we do this as uh, you know because it's fun. So, well, uh, marine news. Uh, Bar Harbor's in the paper. Uh, we had Charlie Phippen, the harbor master, on here a year or so ago about cruise ships coming to Bar Harbor. Is more and more all the time. This year there was uh, seventy three come. And uh, next year, we're talking about 91 cruise ships coming to Bar Harbor, and even the biggest one in the world, uh, Sovereign of the Seas. Sovereign of the Seas. Yeah. Uh, it's actually shorter than the Queen Mary, which has been... But it's been wider a, and it got is, more people. What, 500, 500 feet yeah, five, wider. Well, five, yeah, 500 more people. It's like driving a barge it's, or something. It's, yeah, it's, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. You wonder how that, that town is able to handle all that. It must be like an invading army. 130,000 extra people a year coming over the dock there, plus the tourists that come to town to see the QE2 or the Sovereign of the Seas there. And if you go down to Bar Harbor or come up on it by water, it's an incongruous sight. I don't know how else to say it. Those boats are so freaking big, they don't fit the scenery. They just they overwhelm the, the bay there, and it's, it is quite a sight to see it there. Uh, it's not a uh, 91 different ships. One ship, for instance, comes 17 times. They've, uh, they come more times every year. So, um, you know, just booming that way. Tourism, that's, uh, it's a good thing. As we talked about before, concerns about, uh, the ecology of big tour ships in little bays, not to mention the path they have to plow through, through the crowded, uh, water, lobster gear and all that. But, uh, lobstermen got more different problems. We'll get to that in a little while. More shots, one boat of the year again, but this is a special. Last year was boat of the year for their 42 offshore uh, 42. This year is for the 42-day sailor, a special category of special cruiser boat of the year. The 42 is uh, just a little gem of a boat. It's a day sailor. It's got no lifelines. You're supposed to be uh, no, uh, like, fence post around the deck to make it look awkward. It's got uh, rectangular cabin windows, very retro. It's a sweet-looking boat, and the beauty of it is it looks really simple. It's made up for one person to sail right in front of the wheel is every rope that you need comes back to convenient uh, little clutches they're all, they're all actually and run, wrenches. run underneath the deck, too. So and deck to make clean. it look really uh, not only sweeter but less intimidating, they take a lot of the ropes that you walk. You walk up to a boat on a sail, uh, dock on a sailboat, you look at it, and you stand going, well, I don't even know what all those ropes are, and I'm a sailor. You know, that's pretty intimidating. Well, they hit them. The thing looks simple as can be. And in a way, that's kind of its genius. 
six hundred uh, plus thousand dollars, you can have a forty-two foot day sailor, and it's uh, a step above the thirty-six, which you can't stand up in. But they're selling like uh, gangbusters down there at the Morris. They are a nice looking boat. Yeah, and there's a big niche for that. There was uh, I saw the Tonight Show uh, rebroadcast of the Tonight Show last night, and Jay Leno made a yacht. Uh, he made a boat builder joke. Really? He says, look, he says, uh, orders for mega yachts, 90 foot and above, are just through the roof at the present time, and demand can't be built. He says, more proof that Bush's tax cuts are finally working for, I guess, a certain kind of people, and, and let's face it, a couple of hundred people who build those yachts, to which I had some objection. It's more than that. and. It, it is, uh, again, the second largest, uh, third largest industry in the state of Maine and the only one that's growing. Um, the only uh, thing, uh, manufacturing industry in the state of Maine that's growing is the boat building industry. Speaking of that, we'll have news about the boat school. Hopefully, uh, we'll be getting a call from Dean Pike. Things are changing down there. Um, what else we got to talk about here? Uh, the uh, boat shows coming up this weekend. Oh, that's right. Yes, can't can't neglect that even yeah. if we aren't going to make it. The yeah, it's always a nice, it, it is a, always a remarkable show. It's, it's kind of a little bit like old home day. You know, it's for uh, folks like us to go down there. It's get to see people you haven't seen all year long. That's that's my my greatest joy in it is seeing. We're know, talking like insiders here too. We should define our terms. It would be the main boat builder show. It's in Portland, Maine, yes, at uh, Portland Yacht Exchange in the east end of Portland. Uh, down on the waterfront there, and it is this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a big deal. It's a really big yeah, deal. Yeah, it, it's all in one place, and it's boats of all sorts and sizes. And, and of course, it's kind of a two-for-two because two, there's the Narrow Gauge Railroad Museum in there as well. So when you've had your full of boats, you can go out and take a look at some steam locomotives as well, so it, you can't beat it. Pretty much every boat shop in Maine, with um, especially ambitions to uh, sell things to uh, the yacht, the yachty crowd. And, for instance, uh, the fellow I used to captain for, he never missed that show. He put it in his calendar every year, and he was there. And uh, he wouldn't miss it for anything, partly to see uh, some of the salesmen that were always bothering him because he was a wealthy boat owner, and, and partly to socialize because it is a great social opportunity. Be a great place for us. I'm embarrassed to even uh, say this. I mean... What a trip to, you know, be the boat talk uh, thing, wander around with a tape recorder, but I don't like wandering around with a ta- and putting uh, microphones in front of people's mouth, especially in a crowd. And it's a strange way to have a conversation. So anyway, this weekend, uh, Portland Yacht Exchange, East End of Portland, the main boat builder show. And again, uh, you know, uh, if you have any interest in, in uh, main boat building whatsoever, there's, there's the forum right there, absolutely world class. In a, in a funky setting, too, inside, outside, up and downstairs. You ramble through that place, you can't even understand where you are sometimes. Uh. Yeah, it's a remarkable building. But it, it's, it's a way of celebrating all, all you know, what you were talking about. It's uh, this industry, which is just an amazing industry, the, the, all the effects that boat building has on the state of Maine as far as, you know, if you had to come up with a textbook uh, you know, type of industry to put into a place to rate to uh, literally raise all boats. Boat building is it? It's it's you know it's dispersed. It's all over the state, out at the end of peninsulas, on islands, places where no big factories, no big corporation would ever think of building buildings, or having you know having a workforce. You have a work trained workforce. You get uh, you know the pay people get paid well. It's a lot of artisanship. People come here because they. Uh, the, the state is famous for the quality, and there's all the spin-off, everything that everything from that uh, these local shops buy, everything from local woods to employing local cabinet makers to the sandwich shops. So it's a it's a vibrant, vital type industry that again is not just locked up. You know, it's not like having one or two or three big plants that can uh, can leave and that are you know perhaps owned by some uh, foreign stockholders. Who decide that they're you know they're going to leave tomorrow? That uh, this this is uh, an industry that is just a really good thing for the state. Probably the, probably the, the best thing the state's got going. Let's use we we're just speaking of Morris yachts. Let's use them for an example. Tom Morris started that what in the early seventies down in Southwest Harbor, pretty much by himself. Had a, a nice little sailboat design. I think he started with the. Uh, no, that was uh, Crozier Fox with the 20. I don't know what Tom started with, a, a very small little sailboat. 26-foot double-ender, I believe. Yeah, built one and, uh, you know, built another one and kept going. Now the Morris Company has expanded 
to uh, 100 plus people. And as they just said in the in the paper, they are uh, in an interesting niche. They don't build any power boats. When they took over the Able Yacht facility, they kind of inherited one, but they really don't build a power boat. They've specialized in these day sailors, expensive day sailors, and they're uh, just uh, stellar uh, offshore lines. And uh, they are hard-pressed to find enough good help, and they're also right now trying to find the sweet spot. Where is their perfect size? You don't want to keep growing exponentially. And let's face it, a, a boat shop with uh, three or, let's say, even ten people in it is a different critter to work at than a place with 100-plus people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some people will uh, say that, uh, you know, things can get too big for uh, the experience for the boat builder, if not, uh, you know, everybody else. So, so anyway, tricky business, and, and they are trying hard to find people. Relates again to the boat school. We'll be talking about that in a minute. Keep teasing you about that, but um, well, I think the uh, the uh, boat show in Portland is also good for all the boat builders themselves too, because everybody is walking around taking notes and looking at little things and saying, "Hmm," you know, taking that back to their shop. So, as Greg says, that sort of raises the the whole level. Stealing details, yeah. Now it's yeah. Uh, Tuesday today. Now here's my favorite thing about the boat show. I. I worked in places where we've got to get something ready for the boat show. Well, there's a terrible deadline, okay? And, uh, try, I mean, people are working in the middle of the night right now. There are boats that drive down to the boat shop, to the, to the boat show, literally with the paint being wet, okay, it'll dry while we're towing it down the road, you know? Get the air, I mean, literally, and you find things that are uh, not complete, that are half finished. A lot of boats that will be in there will be under, under construction, and, and uh, you'll get to see them midway through a process can be interesting, too. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's part of the charm of the whole thing. You know, a, lot of, a lot of boat shows you go to, the new ones in New York, where they... Bring they, a half-finished boat? Are you out of your well, mind? They, well, the thing is that you go down there, and you, yeah. you actually talk to the people who build the boats, and I think that, that's an important thing. You go to the ones in New York, you'll have a skirt around the bottom of the boat to kind of give it kind of a nautical, wavy type of ambiance, <laughs> and the salesman on deck will tell you to take your shoes off, and, uh, and and sort of assess whether you what your wallet is when you walk on board, and they really don't know that much about the, the boats. They're but, salesmen. Yep. And uh, but down at the, this show here, it's it's great. Where they have salesmen too. They're not all bad people, but no, you know. No, but they, down here you, you get to talk to the people who actually build it. If you want to know what the boat is made out of, or you know what, how thick the hull is, what kind of propulsion system, all that sort of stuff, these people will know, which is kind of nice. Yeah, Main Boat Builder Show, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Don't have a contact number there, but uh, easily, uh, it's advertised, uh, easily found anyway. Hey, here's a little note we got from Jim Bahoosh this morning. Uh, who's going to be doing On the Wing uh, following this program, 11 to 2. Jim's uh, part of Come Boating down to Belfast where they have those uh, racing gigs down there, you know. And apparently they went down to Hull, Massachusetts, had a big race last weekend. 15 gigs and lots of other smaller craft. There were gigs from as far away as uh, Cornwall, England. There were a couple of Cornish gigs from Cornwall, imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, people from Vermont, where they don't even have an ocean, but I hear they have a big lake. And uh, it was, I guess, a, a beach start on a slushy beach, and mayhem ensued. The Belfast gig got rammed by the Cornwall boys, broke their rudder, I think, before they even got it into the water. Uh, had a pretty good time. The uh, There's pro and amateur... Uh, Categories and the come boating people went pro there. They were racing in that, you know, that's I guess why it was so rough there. Apparently, not even a decent fist fight after that. It's not, there's no NASCAR kind of excitement there, but I guess it was fun for those people. Those, so, yeah, the Cornish guy should have brought more stout, it would have been more fun. But they're out doing it anyway, yeah. isn't that cool? So, we have, uh, we have a phone call. So yeah, let's go to that. Good morning, welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, good morning. This is Bob and Penobscot. And, um, uh, I want to say hi to Greg. Good morning, Greg. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And I just wanted to talk. Somebody called last week about bottom paint, and um, oh, let, yes, a concern of mine. And I, when I was in Rockport, I watched somebody um, scraping their paint before I knew much about it, um, and letting it go into the harbor, which is really a nightmare. But um, when I bottom, I painted my, before I graduated to small boats. I was full enough to have. A big boat. I did bottom paint for a couple years, and my experience was that the stuff doesn't really grow way down four feet under. And um, and I painted my bottom with automotive, um, shiny automotive uh, acrylic 
enamel, and it worked fine. And the wow. only part that I was I was concerned as after a few years of owning this boat, and um, and it worked really well. And for some reason, it seemed to go faster. <laughs> you know, um, but I don't know. I wanted your comments on that, but um, I think that uh, I think. People who use this bottom paint out of laziness, they don't want to hire local divers to go under once or twice a year to uh, to scrub the bottom of their boat. You know. so I think that's part of the reason that they use this toxic bottom paint. Um, I wanted uh, Greg's and Mike's um, um, response to that, but I have just one more thing, and then I'm going to hang up. Uh, about the, um, the big boats, uh, I was tied up in Nassau for a while, with a um, black ship, and it was we were getting to know the people and the tugboats. They were telling us about how the holding tanks for these huge ocean liners only hold two or three days worth. And I, I know some of the big boats, that, the ships that were in the Carnival Cruise Line was one, was tied up for over a week, you know. Then they have to let it go, you know. You've got seven or 800 uh, passengers and seven or 800 crew, you know. It, the holding tanks only hold, you know, just so much. Think of it, Bob. You not only have a uh, passengers and crew septic problem, you have a small city on that boat. You have um, dry cleaners. You have You've kitchens. got a photo sh- photo labs. I suppose it's all digital now, and they don't have photochemicals anymore. I don't know, but you've got a lot of different. Uh, you've got a hospital, a uh, small. You know, uh, there's a lot of different kinds of waste there. Any you find in a small town on that probably, boat? Probably nothing biodegradable. I can imagine. The other thing was we would watch. Dumpster load after dumpster load of trash uh, taken off those um, those ships, you know, and they piled them up onto um, NASA, and now it's all broken down and into the water table, you know. So, so the locals, even these people living in these shacks and stuff, they have to buy bottled water because the groundwater is polluted. You know, it's a horrible situation. Interesting. Well, you're not that far out of line with your shiny automotive acrylic, uh, it's hard for me to even say, using on the bottom of your boat. Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, some boat, uh, I'm sorry, some bottom paints, uh, actually, especially racing bottom paints, that's how they work, by being extraordinarily slick. Nothing can get a purchase on them, and they're faster, less water resistance when you're trying to race your yacht. Um, you have used a non-marine, uh, very slick paint, which I guess has done pretty much the same thing. As you say, the largest amount of growth is right at the waterline in the, you know, the water-sea interface there. And, uh, maybe, uh, a auto-acrylic, uh, you know, from, from, uh, say 6 or 12 inches down, and maybe pepper spray, uh, mixed into the paint above, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and so, and so much is... Determined by uh, water temperature too, with you know different places, very cold temperatures, you're, you're going to get less growth than than further down south, where where you know it's just just more stuff growing. Yeah, um, I know it looks sort of silly, you know, but I've done it more than once. I'm tied up in castine, I just get in there with my uh, my uh, dry suit and a and a brush, you know, and just. Arr. Uh, <laughs> float around and, and scrub the worst of it off and, and not do the bottom paint thing. But you're in the exceptional uh, category of boaters if you're even jumping in and, and trying, you know, to do anything around your boat in the water. Very few people are willing to do that. So They should maybe hire, you could hire local uh, divers to do that. And, and, and another thing is if they don't, you don't see ca- people carrying a, a, a bucket uh, off, a sealed bucket. Um, what are they doing with their with their sewerage? You know, I got to question that. Got to go somewhere. There's no doubt about it. And again, there is the um, uh, holding tank regulations, and and there's the dearth of pumping stations, especially the further east you go. And uh, as for common usage, they're not really in common usage. Uh, you look around the waterfront; who's using them? They're not in common usage. So it's an interesting subject. Bob, we got a good show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Catch you you later, Bob. Appreciate it this morning. Let's give the phone number uh, 1-866-625-9378. Boat Talk, contemplating things naval this morning. Yes, and we have uh, Senator Dennis Damon on the line. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Alan. I know your time is short. We would like to talk about uh, an issue that's been coming up to me quite a bit uh, among the lobster fishermen is the... uh, the issue of making bycatch sellable in the state of Maine. I guess I need to quick, uh, quickly talk about the ground fishermen who uh, are in favor of uh, making this legal. Uh, they 
drag nets that go close to the bottom, um, either single boats or in pairs, and the and the bottom of the nets have chains to stir up the fish and whatever else is down there that they can catch up into the nets, and then they pull them up. And up till now, they've had to throw away, throw back any lobsters that they catch, and uh, now there's a, a law to make that so that they can sell them in-state. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit more detail on that? Sure. No, uh, what you've said is uh, essentially correct. Uh, the drag gear, the trawl, sometimes it's referred to as an auto trawl, is indeed dragged behind a boat. And uh, depending on the bottom that they're fishing on, the type of bottom, hard bottom, soft bottom, um, they, wait, they might use rollers uh, on, the, on the ground rope or a thing called rock hoppers so that they don't catch up big rocks or... If they're in mud, uh, sometimes they can use, as you suggest, chains. They have always caught, people who have dragged these drags behind their boats have always caught, as part of a bycatch, lobsters, because the drags are not selective. They'll catch up anything that's in their way. We have never been able to uh, land lobsters in Maine, therefore sell them, uh, if they're taken by any means other than a conventional lobster trap. So you can't go diving for lobsters. You couldn't catch a lobster on a hook in a line, for instance, as you sometimes could do, and, and uh, keep that lobster. It's very strict. We have a, our lobster fishery is probably the most heavily regulated fishery, um, certainly in Maine and maybe in North America. And the reason why we've made those regulations, many of them coming from at the suggestion of the fishermen themselves, is so that we will have a sustainable fishery. And right now, unfortunately, the lobster fishery of all of our fisheries is the only one that is in a uh, positive position. And so when you overexploit a fisheries, could be sea urchins, could be elvers, could be groundfish, then um, you come to hard times. And that's what we're on in many of the, many of the fisheries. So this bill which is being put forth, I think, primarily by the city of Portland and on behalf of the Fish Exchange, which is the auction house where fish are landed in Maine, because the Fish Exchange is a, uh, a city-owned or a municipally-owned uh, enterprise. Uh, they want to have as many fish come to that, uh, that business as they can. And right now, fishermen who are, who are undergoing some very tough times uh, need to be able or feel as though they need to be able to sell their lobsters as a bycatch. And the only place they can currently do it is in Massachusetts. And so this law, this proposed law, LD-170, would change that and allow these fishermen who go out and drag for groundfish, cod, haddock, flounder, etc., to bring in their lobster bycatch to increase their bottom line. I understand why they're doing it, and I know that ground fishermen need to be helped. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you take the chance of ruining a robust fishery, one that over 6,500 licensed fishermen exploit, pursue, exploit might be the bad word, but pursue for the sake of a few? And I don't happen to think that we should. Can I throw in a couple of extra ideas here, Dennis? The sure. Portland Fish Exchange, uh, everybody would agree, was a, a great idea. It's had a good history. Landings there are down by half in the last year. And uh, the number of draggers in Maine is way down, too. There's only about 100 left, apparently. And they do go to Massachusetts uh, not only so they can land lobster. Fuel is cheaper there. Dockage is cheaper there. It's closer to George's Bank where they're fishing sometimes there. There's uh, more than a couple factors there, really, isn't there? There really are. And there, um, I, w- I set on a uh, task force maybe two or three years ago now, and uh, we came up with 31 recommendations of how we may try to help the ground fisheries in Maine so that it could continue to be a part of our fishing heritage and our fishing future. Um, there was discussion then about landing lobsters. It was decided that that was not going to be one of the recommendations, and it isn't. But there was also a recommendation to um, uh, try to preserve the working waterfront. You know what? We had a constitutional change voted by the people of the state of Maine. We had two pieces of legislation enacted that will help do this. I think that that's pretty big. Now, in the short term, does it help them as much as it should? Probably not. But in the long term, that's what's going to keep the, the ground fishery and the lobster fishery and any of the other marine-related activities uh, able to 
continue to work in Maine. The issue, though, might be can we do something else? Can we, for instance, um, uh, eliminate the sales tax on ice or fuel or some of the other commodities that the fishing fleet has to buy in an effort to to relieve some of the pinch on their bottom line. And I'm very willing to entertain those discussions, but I'm not willing to sacrifice one fishery for another. More facts here. Lobsters make up 77% of uh, fisheries landings in the state of Maine. Interestingly enough, number two would be farmed salmon. You got your ground fish, uh, mussels, clams, urchins, eels, worms, uh, even kelp. They're all going down. And landings, uh, the lobster fishery, too, uh, landings are down this year. And uh, the price of lobsters was down as well. Expenses, on the other hand, are well known to be up. Um, I'm also worried, Dennis, about the, uh, and of course there's the uh, floating rope controversy about uh, protecting whales, how they may want to uh, make all fishermen uh, change from floating to sinking rope. And uh, I'm worried, Dennis, frankly, about what's happened to uh, to the south of here, where the lobster fishery, uh, basically from New Hampshire on down, has kind of gone to hell. They have not had nearly the regulations in any of those states, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, certainly Connecticut and New York, that we have here in Maine. It's no coincidence that our fishery is, is as robust as it is, notwithstanding the slight downtick uh, in landings this year. We have had tremendous landings over the past 12 years, uh, far above anything that was taking place when I was fishing or when my father was fishing, um, and that's because of the regulations that we have. And the fishermen have worked hard. We have had to make some very difficult decisions in the lobster fishery, like limiting the number of people who can get into it. Who would ever thought in Maine that uh, as part of your heritage, uh, if you were in a fishing family, that you might not be able to go fishing? That's almost unconscionable. And yet, we've enacted those kinds of laws, and we've done it so that we can continue the, the lobster resource, so we can continue to have a lobster fishery. And I would suggest to you that those same kinds of conservation measures have not been taken in the ground fish industry, because that's what we're talking about. I could go into some others, but the ground fish industry, you know, it may be time that we go back to a hook fishery where we have minimum damage to the, the uh, environmental bottom, um, and we also uh, obviously land less fish. That might be the thing that we need to do to uh, bring back some of the stocks. That's not going to happen in the short term. So what we need to do is find a way that we can help the fishermen now to keep them in business, to keep the shoreside infrastructure still here, so that when those stocks do come back, and they are predicted to come back, we'll still have a portion of that landing in Maine. Well, it's uh, just a totally complicated uh, situation, um, all the different interested parties, the, the government, the scientists, the ecologists, the fishermen, uh, all after, uh, you know, a natural resource that is changing and, and uh, you know, a lot of it diminishing. Mm -hmm. um, like, say, uh, pretty interesting. Um, there's different ways to do it. I was also reading something uh, recently. The Canadians, uh, Nova Scotia, they fish only in the winter, and they, they have been maintaining that they put a lot less effort uh, per lobster into catching lobsters than we do, and why shouldn't we uh, think about how they do it? But, of course, that would be heresy to change, uh, you know, talk change with lobstermen. You've got a big problem. On the other hand, you've got a uh, distinct fishery in the winter along Monhegan there. Mm -hmm. That works, but Monhegan's a special touristy little. They make good money in the summer doing other things. So, like well, I say, complicated, ain't it? We have It is very complicated. Any time that you try to manage a natural resource, in this case the fisheries, <clears throat> you have to end up managing the resource, the fish, and the fishermen. And I always say when the fishermen complain to me, for instance, that look at what you've done, we're not going to be able to make a living now, I would say to them, well, what would you do if there weren't any, and you fill in the blank, there weren't any elvas, there weren't any urchins, there weren't any lobsters, there weren't any groundfish, what would you do then? And the fact of the matter is we don't want to get to that point where there never are any. So we have to make those kinds of measures ahead of time. Uh, also in Canada, you brought up Canada and the fact that they have a closed season. They also don't allow dragging for lobsters. That's kind of, uh, kind of interesting. I really think the solution here, so that we don't have this kind of debate, is to prevent the landing of dragged lobsters anywhere uh, along the shores of the Gulf of Maine. You also need to buy a license in Canada. I talked to a lady a few years ago in uh, northern Nova Scotia. I think she was talking about a quarter of a million dollars, more or less, to buy a lobster license for herself. Yeah, they have, uh, they have a thing where the licenses are uh, transferable. We don't do that. There's been bills before my committee to try to do that. I don't support it 
this is a a uh, a common resource. This is owned, in my mind, by all of the people of Maine, and they ought to be able to have entry into the fisheries as they can get it, rather than sell their entry to the next highest bidder. For instance, uh, can a doctor who also has a license sell his license uh, once he wants to get out of his business? Um, can you sell your driver's license? Of course, the answer to those are all no, and I don't believe you should be able to sell your fishing license. Now, you can sell your boat, you can sell your gear, you can do all of those other kinds of things, but that license is not really owned by you. It's owned by the state. It's for the good of the common people within the state who can, who can get access to that license. Um, and so um, I don't, you're just renting it time for a time being. Very interesting. Senator Dennis Damon, you had a hearing on this uh, lobster landing thing at the Augustic Civic Center. said 475 people spoke in favor of the lobstermen and only 26 um, about in favor of the draggers. Uh, as you say, you're talking about people, let alone fish. Mm. Um, you know, what's uh, you down at the legislature today? What, what's what's up today? Anything well, exciting? Well, as we speak, the bell is ringing, and I'm supposed to be up in the Senate chamber tending to my duties there. So I am going to have to run. We will certainly but, let you go. We have on my plate today. I also chair the transportation committee, and uh, we are looking at the highway fund budget. That's a big problem. Uh, tomorrow, we're among other things in my marine resources committee. We're starting our work session on LD-170, the bill that we heard, as you mentioned, over at the Civic Center. Um, we'll start our, the committee will start its work session there. Uh, we'll see what kind of a vote we get out of committee on the bill, and then that will go to the floor and have its final vote. So that's what we're doing here. Senator Dennis Damon, Democrat, Hancock County, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Good luck, guys. Anytime, Thank you, Dennis. Dennis. Thanks. Bye-bye. Telephone yeah. number, I guess. Yes, <laughs> Okay, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Can't solve the problems there, man. There's lots of them, and well, it's complicated. It, well, it, too, it is. And, it's it, it's the question of the commons again, and yeah. and it's it rethinking of a, of a finite resource with an infinite demand. Right. Yeah. Everybody wants to to ride the wave, and they don't realize that it's heading towards shore, do they? I'll tell you something else. I hear from talking to lobster fishermen. Um, there's Again, I've made this point before. There are state laws about how the lobster fishery operates. There are human uh, laws and traditions about how it really operates. And we have a picture of happy fishermen rowing their punts out to their boats every morning and going out and having a peanut butter sandwich, coming back, selling their lobsters. And uh, I'm telling you what, it is territorial. It is uh, very personal. And uh, a lot of people uh, don't play nicely. In the common garden is is what you find if you look really close at mm. the coast. Yeah, it's like politics and sausage making are yeah. kindred spirits, aren't they? Phone's ringing off the hook here. one 625 number. Let's see who's there. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Hi, I'm Jamie from Prospect. Hi, Jamie. I was glad to hear your previous guest mention the hook fishery because that's the real answer. I was a golf diver for... Um, quite a few years. It was only about two days out of all those years I saw some bottom that actually didn't look like it was destroyed. Yeah. Uh, and you get to see the bottom. A real fisherman never sees the bottom. It's really a mystery to him. Well, I don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I think the habitat destruction is one of the main issue here. Um, and making dragging easier is not going to solve anything. Yep. Well, thank you. I think a lot okay. of people ag- agree with that one. We have another phone call. Let's go. Oh, no, we don't have another phone call. Isn't it interesting, though? The solution is to uh, not a new technology, how to catch fish. We've got too good at that. We've got to go back to the methods that we uh, used several hundred yeah, years long ago. Lining and other, yeah, other yep. ways. Two men in a dory and, you know, the old dory full of fish paradigm, so to speak. Yeah. Phone is ringing here again. We'll see who's there in a minute. we got Greg Roussel uh, as a guest here this morning. We are going to talk about his brand-new book, the Boat Builder's Apprentice, the ins and outs of building lap straight carvel, stitch and glue, strip plank, and other wooden boats. And, uh, yeah, the phone just rang again. Who's there? Good morning. Uh, good, good morning, Michael uh, and the other gentleman. This is Mark from Fishworth. Hey, Mark. Just a very quick question. Uh, is there a difference philosophically? I know the, the shrimpers are also asking to be able to take the herring bycatch. Is, what's the difference? Is there? 
there's you. a there's a herring problem too. The the herring I'll, allocation. I'll hang up now. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, the herring allocation has just changed this year too, and uh, herring is what the lobster fishery runs on. It's their prime bait. I've also made the point here repeatedly that. Um, in a way, lobster fishermen don't so much fish lobsters as ranch them. They put, uh, you can count how many metric tons of herring into the water every year. And uh, the efficiency of the modern lobster trap is not what you would think. There is a great video taken of a lobster trap underwater. This is in the book, uh, it's in several books. Uh, Secret Life of Lobsters, for instance, goes into detail about this. Um, you may uh, have as many as, uh, let's say, six or 700 entries and exits from a lobster trap by not 700 lobsters, but multiple lobsters. They fight in a dominance fight over the bait there. They go in, they strip it, and when the fisherman comes back, uh, mind you, six or seven entries and exits or, or approaches even to the trap but fought off by somebody who's on the bait eating it and bigger than you, you can't get in. Uh, they'll count that as an approach to the trap. I mean, hundreds people, the, the lobsters fight over this stuff. When they pick up the trap in, in this lobster video, they had uh, two keepers and a couple of shorts, you know. And uh, in a way, what they're doing is throwing hay bales into a pasture there, I say, and uh, the lobsters are ranching on the, on the herring bait. The herring's uh, g- going out of style, too, is the point. So, uh, you know, more problems. Nobody on Nobody the phone. phone. Okay, a lot well, of head shaking. It gives us a chance to get to. Greg's we'll find book. that website too. There is a there is a uh, apparently There's footage a, on the web. I don't think it's on YouTube yet, but of uh, it's a webcam of uh, also of a uh, lobster pot, which can sort of uh, it's pretty slow going if you don't have. You know, you don't want to expect a lot of fast action. If you were a, sci- a scientist, you'd want to do the time-lapse thing, and like I said, but uh, you throw the lobster pot in there, and, and it attracts lobsters immediately, and they fight over the bait, basically. About as interesting as the webcam of the North Pole. Yeah, and as one lobster fisherman said after watching that, uh, you know, you call that a trap? You know, 90-plus <laughs> uh, percent of lobsters can enter and exit at will. You call that a trap? Mm. But we don't see it that way because we're not down there and uh, not like our diver friend Jamie who just called. Anyway, we do have Greg Roussel here this morning. Wrote a great new book. Nancy from uh, International Marine slash McGraw-Hill sent this over to us, uh, knowing what uh, booksellers we can be here. <laughs> and, uh, Greg, I am just so jealous. It's a beautiful-looking book. Uh, again, The Boat Builder's Apprentice. Um, you've written two other ones. Yeah, yeah. They, Would you list your bibliography, please, sir? Well, there's small boat building, which is um, more or less an exploration of all the techniques going into building uh, uh, lapstrake and carvel planking of small boats. And then I did a, a book with Ted Moore's wonderful one on on, uh, on building uh, stitch and glue, uh, mostly kayaks and different techniques, different takes on that. And this book here is... I guess it's about options and opportunities and tools. I was same thing trying driving down here. What exactly is it about? But it's a uh, over. This is going to be like twenty years. I've been been teaching down at the Wooden Boat School, and probably the the most often asked question by students when they come in come into the class is, what sort of what sort of uh, boat should I build? It's an introductory fundamentals of boat building course. And I said, what kind of boat should I build? And, and usually the usual suspects sort of show up, either a stitch and glue kayak or a Haven 12 and a half, because they're, they're wonderful boats, but they, they see the most press. But there's, there's so many different kinds of boat styles and hulls. And, and, you know, until fairly recently, I mean, into early 20th century, there was a, a zillion different kinds of styles of boats that showed up all up and down the coast. Every every cove and harbor had their specific type of hulls, depending on how the boat was being used. And that's what builders would build for their lo- local constituencies. And as time went by and as uh, more boats became more... Uh, uh, boat building became more consolidated, or you know, marketing of boats is mass production. That fewer and fewer designs were were sort of talked about or offered. Uh, that were sort of general, all-purpose type of designs. But there really are a lot of different ways of approaching boats. I mean, you know, you think about the flat bottoms, hard chine, round bottoms, all these different types of hull styles. And then, of course, there's there's boats for paddle, there's boats for sail, boats for power, and all the different kind of construction styles. And their carvel lapstrake. You know, strip, strip uh, built, uh, stitch and glue, uh, coal molded. And so I said, well, 
so you know, I guess I'd say, to, you know, people say, well, well, what are you going to do with the boat? I guess that would be the the first thing, uh, you know, because we, you know, a boat that works well for us right here. I mean, I've got a, I have a white hull and a, and a, and a sharpie, and they're traditionally built, and they can live on a trailer all summer long, and that's great for here. But with, let's say you're in Arizona. What kind of boat is, you know, that, that boat would just shrivel up and blow away out there, just dry, dry up, you know, because there's no place someone would have, instead of having the boat being able to put into the water, most of the time it lives in a hot car park, uh, carport. So, you know, th- there are all these different things that go into, into uh, building a boat to uh, those kind of concerns, you know, what kind of design, you know, what do you, what do you want to do with the boat? You want to explore with it? You know, uh, is it, you know, the evening sail? So that's what I guess, uh, the uh, book is kind of about and and you know and I guess we, I sort of talk about a little bit of, of what looks good. Uh, Giffy last time called you guys and talked about you know good looking boats, good looking boats. Not too many down at the marinas in Florida. He was around. Yeah, and 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 you know you you okay, we're really spoiled around here as far as the type of boats that you can you can see. I mean, you can see everything right across the board. It's wonderful stuff, and that you know. Not all over the country you're not going to get that. So that's it's part of the exploration and and why it's it's all it's all about wood and why wood because I I know it the best and and things you can build anything out of wood, which is you know if you, with a minimal amount of tools you can build just about about anything without a lot of extra jigging, a lot of extra you know power machinery and a lot, a lot of different things. Basic shop you can build just about anything. As a, a small boat builder, I, I can't help but admire your diversification. You're not only a small uh, self-employed boat builder, mostly doing traditional work. You teach at the Wooden Boat School. You even go out to San Francisco sometimes, don't you? Mm-hmm. Do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, you uh, write books and magazine articles as well. Um, you know, wonderfully, again, I called you last week. It was 10 below zero, and uh, you were in writing something instead of out in the freezing cold shop. Well, yeah, well, that's, well, it's, it, diversification is what, what, what it's all about, and that's a small, small shop has to be diversified. That's a lot of different jobs, though. Uh, in a way, isn't it easier to build a boat than to write about one? Well, it's, 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 it's real different. Yeah, you know, it's they and but you know the writing kind of keeps your keeps your thought process honest because you know that that you have to actually work you know write down what you're doing you know it's, it's like telling someone you know if you someone comes up to you and you say Michael how do you, how do I do this like people come in and and just sort of sit down and actually go blow by blow by blow and then you say oh did I really have this whole thought out. Right, and but when you put it put it down in a text, it really kind of forces you to look at what you've been doing. Well, even the IRS can describe things like tax laws, but that doesn't make them easy to read. You also have a very nice style with with a uh, wit and humor, and and you kind of keep it light and stuff, which is a good thing. But again, even if you can figure out a uh, uh, a stem bevel with a changing uh, you know a changing bevel in the rabbit, uh, God forbid, how do you write about it? You know. Well, it or, is. Making yeah. them lapse over the lap strike, uh, yeah, that you momentary know, lapse. You know, come out at the yeah. flush at the end. There, it's all all kind of a mystery. And and again, uh, writing clearly and nicely about it, it's a wonderful looking book. And uh, well, it's a lot about storytelling, though. And, and, you know, people, you know, the, the teaching. You know, it, it can uh, again. You know, that's that's a whole other thing. And and again, this is the stuff that you guys do here, but a lot, a lot, of, lot about about teaching and telling people is storytelling. Friend Tom says that you, oh, you, it te- yeah, yeah, Greg teaches by parable, and I guess so. I a lot of the story, stuff that I. <laughs> yep. uh, uh, it's stuff that I talk about are really mistakes that I, you know, true life mistakes and screw ups and things that I've done, you know, and how how to get yourself out of out of out of trouble. And it's a lot easier to tell stories on yourself than uh, than to you know to say oh just do this. It's more like well that yeah well this didn't work and uh, this is how this is what one way. Oh and, and the other thing I guess about in in the, in the books is to try to. Present as many different ways to do stuff as you can, because there's, you know, there's, and uh, most of us have like one way to do it, but really there's a lot, a lot of different ways to do it, and and so you try to present as many different ways as possible. Now we've said all good things about your beautiful book, and I love your book. I'm, I'm intensely jealous that you wrote it and I didn't, but uh, you know that's my little problem. Still, uh, when you get to methods, now we've got some. Uh, I, 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 I'm a, I'm a little different boat builder than you are, I think. And uh, 
For instance, you're not as fond as, of the modern goos and adhesives as uh, I am. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. um, I uh, was very shocked. One of the first things I, I looked in there, and, and again, this is a wonderfully uh, illustrated. There's lots of drawings. I don't think you can talk boats without a pencil and a drawing. There's lots of drawings and photographs in there. Could always have more, but and a good uh, index. I went right to the index and, and uh, thought, let's see how he discusses making patterns. Because in uh, boat building, in, a, in, a, in essence, there was a great sign from a Scottish boat shop in Wooden Boat a year, years ago, and it listed all the things they did. And the last thing, that service they provided was queer fits, which is really what a boat builder does oh, yes. in a lot yes, of ways. You know? Makes queer fits. So uh, how do we make patterns? And uh, you have spiling in there and all that, but you didn't have uh, any hot glue stick patterns in there and that kind of that's the best trick oh, i yeah. know and uh, well yeah well that that's in the other book i can't can't repeat everything with uh, with everything. but yeah there, there's a lot you know, patterns you are dead on with this pattern business all you know like boat, boat building i sort sort of think about it thought about it some it's more like dressmaking in a way you know in when, a lot of ways when, it is, when, yeah. when you think about it you're you're taking these flat flat pat, uh, panels and wrapping around the regular, depending on who you're wrapping around, the more odd-shaped panel, panels you have to have. But it's all pa- pattern-making. And that's, that's one of the things that, you know, that actually it's when, when I'm teaching my classes is to try to get, get guys, and mostly it's guys, you know, really good, uh, uh, fast uh, production uh, cabinet makers and house builders to stop and make patterns. And to be able to, you know, to dummy things in and realize that it's the pattern that really saves you. It doesn't cost you money. It makes you money because you're not wasting material. When you get it right, you can, you can have those patterns and you can take it to the stock and you can line up that grain and you can be real efficient with your stock, which is really, really expensive now. And in my case, I was in Virginia one time in August in a parking lot uh, working on a boat with no air conditioning. It was just, it was brutal. And I taught that fellow how to make uh, patterns and then mail them to me in Maine so I could get the hell out of there. Oh, yeah. And it worked out just fine. So uh, here's uh, the other issue I have with you is is over goose. And you even um, established the problem uh, quite concisely. Should you bed this, let's say, a centerboard trunk with a traditional boatyard bedding compound, knowing that it's going to leak later and you can take it off and rebed it? Or should you put the Secaflex, the, I hate to, I'm not a fan of 5200, uh, 3M's uh, polyurethane goo. Well, let's, goo, let's but, talk industrial Yeah, strength, let's put so. in uh, the real polyurethane goos in there yep. that I love so much. And with the uh, understanding that it may be more difficult to get apart if it fails, but it might not ever fail. So, yeah. and and it isn't it why why it's a it's a moral dilemma, which is a little bit like an alpaca. The 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 uh, you know it's you know which one do you choose? And I don't think there's any really right answer to that. You know, it's it's you know when I when I build a boat, I guess I try to figure out. If I figure that if I got to replace everything, let's say if I'm doing a built-up stem, you know, with the conventional old-fashioned stem, you know, with the stem four-foot knee, I'll, I'll bed that in like 5,200, figuring that if, if it goes ah, bad. None of us like 5,200. <laughs> but let's, let's say, but, you know, because it's, uh, when, you know, when you've done that, you've created a solid, uh, solid kind of a solid unit, much not unlike old-fashioned grown knee. Mm-hmm. And if if that is destroyed, you're probably going to end up repairing the whole thing. If you take a little chip out of the top, or you take a little bit out of, out of the cut water, you can repair that. But that'd be one thing. But then if there's other things that uh, that you might see that need to be repaired, well, then that you know, in, in your mind, I get sort of like uh, the stuff the 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 moral equivalent of the the lug lug nuts on your wheel. You know, you don't want to weld your lug nuts. That's that's kind that's, of yes, and so so you're always making this this judgment call, they, and a lot of times you get it wrong. I mean, one time I when the f- stuff first came out, I went and did a lapstrate boat and put that that uh, uh, that uh, fifty two hundred in between each one of the laps, and that being that boat hadn't been out the door a day before one of the planks cracked, and I now had see fifty two hundred doesn't stretch like Secaflex. It's not a good in the sunlight. Uh, you know, it has. And and my but, point you know, would be that. But then, um, well, well, when it's going there, I said, I really shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't. Yeah. But I, but I, 
didn't know it, you know, and that's, you know, but it's, so it's always a judgment call. You do have an excellent discussion in there of compatibilities. Does this thing take paint? Does it eat plastic? I mean, I've learned some of those things the hard way. Oh, yeah. You're talking the, uh, the some polycarbonates and polysulfates. Interesting and, chemistry yeah. experiments there. Yeah. But uh, here's the thing. Um, there are ways to deal with these things. They're not unconquerable. Uh, you can get things apart that are bedded with uh, a modern polyurethane goo, for instance, uh, I wouldn't even try it without a bunch of little hardwood wedges. And then, uh, you know, hot knives, no, you can hurt the gel coat and stuff if you're uh, taking something off the deck of a Hinkley or a Morris, for instance. But if you tap some little uh, oak wedges under there and then judicious use of a knife, these things can be, I'm I'm telling you, you can outsmart them. Um, And I think that needs to be more, uh, you know, kind of more brought to the fore that they're not... um, they they do have their problem side, but everything can be outsmarted is the way I look at it. And yeah, I, I differ it. from you on, on approach that way. Other yeah. than that, love your book, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but, but, you know, but isn't it great, though? There's all these different things. But you, it, think about the f- f- philosophical uh, discussion about uh, epoxy and resorcinols and the, and the near re- re- religious zealotry that people will oh, have, yeah. ad- different adherents, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. It's actually probably generations of people who are now coming up who don't even know what boatyard bedding compound is anymore. <laughs> what would have the Harishoffs made of epoxy and, and yeah. uh, polyurethane goos? I like to think that if they had access to those things, they'd use them, you know. Yeah. I, and, what I can't uh, understand is why don't they make uh, 5200 or Sigaflex or whatever that is stretchy? I mean, they don't have to be totally granite when they're cured. I mean, as long as they stick well. Well, that is the thing. Sycaflex is, uh, will stretch t- uh, a little bit. Twice. Uh, they, they claim double, uh, you know, repeatedly. And I've, I used to make up samples. I've, I've performed the heresy multiple times of putting Sycaflex polyurethane goo in a Carvel seam plank where uh, seam compound would go in, in Greg's uh, understanding. Uh, works for a long time. Uh, and anyway, you got to do it right. And uh, yeah, I, I would take two cedar uh, boards and I'd glue them together on the bench and then I'd hand them to people. I'd say, grab onto this. And I said, try to stretch that, mister. And people, you know, they can't pull it <laughs> apart and people would go, wow. So, you know, some little destructive testing. We're in the last few minutes of boat talk here. It looks like you got telephone. The phone's there. still ringing, uh, you know. And I uh, can't wait to see what happens next. Anyway, Greg, like I say, wonderful book. It's called yeah. The uh, Boat Builder's Apprentice, ins and outs of uh, different kinds of uh, boat building. Sort of a textbook in a way is, is sort of how I look at it. Yeah, yeah let's go quickly to that one yeah. last caller, and then we'll say goodbye. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. I have a subject that's probably for another. I was just listening to you talk about all these goos, and I know people have gotten really sensitized in boat shops. And uh-huh. It was just making me feel, oh, God, I think. I think I'll be sick. And I suppose you do talk about that on the program sometimes. We have, and uh, it's a very large subject. So, so you're yeah. right. We'll, we'll uh, talk about that. Remember that, but thank you for the okay. call. You can walk into a building with a pot. Hives, oh, if you've got too much stuff. epoxy to you, let alone the polyurethanes. It says right on the tube uh, it causes cancer in California, so I try never to use it in California. And I've decided it's probably not good on toast, but I like it on about everything else, you know. Right, yeah. Even even things the are more organic things. I mean, wood dust is is is, is bad. cedar dust, which smells so nice, is, is quite bad for your for your lungs. Tropical I'm working, hardwoods, I've heard. Are I'm working bad. with some uh, fiberglass dust right now. Matter of fact, I feel vaguely itchy just sitting here at the present time, and you, you know, look a little itchy. You yeah, know, it's wiggling around or something. That's all valid. Uh, you know, then the then you've got that modern uh, you know liquid uh, boat building, uh, so to speak. You know. Uh, and and there are lots of possibilities. Uh, again, uh, you know, what kind of boat do you want? And I think important when you're building a boat, let's face it, a lot of people have started to build boats that have never been finished. You've got to pick something that you can actually understand the process and, and complete is, I think, uh, big in, in choosing a project, you know. Mm. Well, Greg, where is your book available besides, I'm, I'm sure, a wooden boat? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I guess most any uh, bookstore can get it. I mean, there's those, those on, online outfits carry it as mm-hmm. well, and wooden boat carries, and, and, uh, and most, most bookstores can, can get it, uh, I guess, around, I don't know, Mr. Paperback type of place can get it, or any of the small bookstores and, you know, around towns, I guess. Do you tour around with it? Uh, we make a million dollars on this? Uh, uh, no. 
<laughs> no, and, and uh, no one's made any uh, advances for movie rights yet. But <laughs> Do you have a, uh, another book in you? Oh, I don't know. I have to take a while. You have, you have to go through recovery after doing doing one of these. You know, it takes a lot. Starts with an idea, though, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, you mean you want to punt for a while. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, and we got in the obligatory Botox pond. The phone's ringing. We're just about out of time here this morning. Botox, uh, we have a website, Botox.org. We're working on the theme music thing. Uh, the temporary stuff's in the background here playing us out. And uh, we'll be ramping that up. And uh, not to mention there's a few sea stories and and stuff there, you know, and, uh, you know, tell us what you think as well. It's interactive. Uh, Greg Roussel in here this morning. Second Tuesday of the month. Uh, write it on your calendar. We'll be back. Stay tuned for On the Wing, Jim Bahoosh, and uh, the rest of the WERU days coming up. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Oh, thank you, Greg. Loved having you, Greg, anytime. Thanks, Boat Talk is made possible in part by Atlantic Challenge, home of the Apprentice.